Father, we pray your blessing on this time. We pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would anoint. Lord, not just the speaking, yes, the speaking, but not just the speaking, but the hearing as well. We pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that truly desire to understand what it is you have for us this morning. And so we yield to the working of your spirit now. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been uh, the last couple of weeks in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We're going to actually touch on it for the third time this morning, but going to back up and take a run at it from a little different direction. Um, But the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians has been laying out the first three chapters, as you may remember if you've been with us, are devoted to doctrine. They're devoted to having an understanding of what it is to be in Christ. Then he shifts gears and he begins to apply those truths that he's been giving in verses or chapters four through six and what it is to have Christ in you. And, and so that's what we've been looking at. We've uh, been looking at this concept of the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man. And when we speak of man, that's universal, that's humanity. It's not misogynistic or any weird thing like that. Uh, but the point is, is that he is talking about these attributes of God. When he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, to imitate God, we looked at it's important to know if we're to imitate God, who it is that we're imitating. We have to know the God that we serve and that we love in order to imitate him. We looked at the attributes of God the last couple of weeks. The first two weeks ago, we looked at the incommunicable attributes, those attributes of God, what makes God who he is, his nature and his character, that he does not communicate with us, the infinite attributes, <laughs> like uh, the fact that he is consumingly above and beyond all of us. And, and we looked at the, those parts of his nature uh, that he does not share, that he is immutable, he never changes, that, that he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all of that. Don't need to go into it again. But then last week we looked at the communicable attributes of God. We talked about initially leading off with the holiness of God because many of his other attributes are functions of his holiness. And here we're, we're trying to describe God. We, he's really beyond our defining. But as we describe these things, realizing that he's all of these things simultaneously at once as relates to infinity is just kind of mind-blowing. But we looked at the fact that he's holy and that he shares his holiness with us. He calls us to holy living. He calls us to walk in love to, to use wisdom, the wisdom that he gives. We talked about the difference between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world, to faithfulness and to righteousness and mercy and grace and so on. We looked at all of that. And, and, and so as we're shifting gears here, we're going to, Paul very definitely shifts gears in this passage this morning. I want to look at the topic, and rightfully so, of discernment in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, if you don't have one of those, it's available online. It's a fascinating and fabulous resource. I use it more and more. I've really begun to love that as a, uh, one of the standard things that I consult when I'm looking at words and definitions and all. Because Noah Webster was a, a God-fearing man, and, and his 1828 edition was before man got in there and started <laughs> kind of watering down a lot of it, and and he would speak from a Christian worldview as he defined different words. His definition of the word discern 
is to see or understand the difference to make distinction as to discern between good and evil and truth and falsehood. You'll see in the passage that we're going to get into this morning that that fits perfectly. Now, when we look at discernment, very often when I think about, and and by the way, discernment is a spiritual gift, and there are people that have sort of discernment on steroids. I mean, they have really a keen sense of discernment, and people that God is specifically gifted in that way, but that he also, by the power of his Holy Spirit, the working of his Spirit, grants all of us a spirit of discernment. And it's something that's standard equipment for us as Christians. And so very often when I use discernment, and when I think about what this word means, I I apply it to you. (laughs) I don't mean you personally, but I apply it to other people. (laughs) Nancy's going, oh no, not me. But the point is, is that that, that when we talk about discernment, it's like I'm discerning something about you. But folks, there is a function of discernment that is very, very critically important in our lives. And that's that, folks, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above some things. It's not what the Bible says. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who could know them? And as we discern, as we allow the Holy Spirit to bring light into our souls, to bring light into our lives, into our hearts, he gives us the ability to discern subtleties that we can, I'll tell you what, we can deceive ourselves over, that we can start making excuses for sin. We can start allowing the world to press in and to start adopting or to continue to adopt and not repent of the things of this world in our lives. So, the reason why I titled this message Discern here in, in Ephesians 5 is Paul's talking about the difference between imitating God or imitating the world. And, and that it's through discerning what's happening in my life by the Holy Spirit that I learn to distinguish very clearly between the two because we adopt all kinds of crazy things from our culture. Uh, and I'm not being insulted. I'm saying that our culture presses in at us. It's crouching at the door in many areas of our lives. And we are called to live lives that are set apart. That's part of what it is to be a saint. We go from sinner to saint, from person out there in the world to literally that word translates holy one. As we look at this, that we see that every Christian has a moral compass. It's one that God has put there. It's not there. I mean, you look out at the world that we're in. You look out at the things that people are putting forth in the name of justice. You look out at the things that people are putting forth in in calling peaceful assembly. You look out at the things that are going on and, and somebody going to a large wedding the other day telling me that, yeah, well, we went to this wedding. And I said, well, it was large. How did you get around that with the law and all? They said, well, he said, I talked to the groom's father and he said, we're either having a wedding or we're having a riot. Either way, we're going to do this. And I, I kind of laughed, but it was, it, there's this craziness out there. But each of us has a moral compass. The Holy Spirit is our helper. That's why Jesus said, he will come. He will come alongside you, and he will guide you into truth. He will give you discernment between good and evil, right and wrong, walking by the flesh or by the Spirit. We can see that. We can discern these things in our own lives. And that's what Paul's heart is towards the Ephesian church at this time. They lived in a godless culture. And, and as we're going to read through the first seven verses here, and then we're going to come back, we'll unpack it a bit, and hopefully see that this discernment is critical in our lives. 
Uh, verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 3, But all fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Obviously, Paul is talking about sin in this passage. And he's talking to Christians, and he's warning them. We'll see there's a strong warning here as we look at in verse 5. Uh, and, and, you know, I like to just kind of break things down into bite-sized nuggets because, all right, he's talking about sin, and for some of this will be it's rudimentary, but for some of us it may be new, to, new information. But I want to look at a definition for sin. In its broadest definition, sin is anything short of the holy perfection of God. That's why you can't make your own righteousness. We've talked about that. It's not possible. You have to have grace in your life. And I want you to understand as we go through this that grace is always available to the, sinnent, to the sinning, unrepentant heart when repentance comes. We talked about a culture of repentance last week. Grace is always available. God is always in the business of restoring people. It's not his will that we just get out there and stay out there and have no way back. I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's only one step back, no matter how many steps away from him you take. But as we look at sin, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word literally translates to miss the mark. All right? In both languages, it's an archery term. The Greek word is hamartia, and that's what it means. If you were an archer and you shot at a target and your arrow missed the target, uh, you would say you sinned, you hamartia. And, and that's how this word became, uh, it evolved into being used in, in a definition for sin in our lives. It's missing the mark. Now, there are varying ways that we miss the mark. I want you to understand, though, in the book of Revelation that John there writes, he, he talks about liars and murderers. He puts them in the same sentence that they're both cast into the lake of fire. Sin is sin. And, and yeah, we could grade on the curve. Well, there's Adolf Hitler and, and six million Jews, and that is pretty heinous. I mean, it's horrible. It's unthinkable. And then there's the person that cheated on their taxes or had a foul mouth or whatever. And so we like to do that, but we've got to realize that from God's standpoint, from God's holy, divine standpoint, sin is sin. And I want to look at some different ways that sin comes about in our lives. So it could be that sin is reactionary or in ignorance. If you remember in Leviticus in the Old Testament that on the Day of Atonement, that day was for what? It was for the sins of the people committed in ignorance, the, that they had gone through this whole year, the things that they, they were just bipping along and they blew it and they didn't think any more about it. Uh, I was thinking about this and, and I was remembering back when I was a sign contractor and I was up probably, I don't know, 60, 70 feet up on a billboard one day, and 
I was nailing, you know, they had the big cutout extensions on them. I, I was working by myself. I was in my 30s and early 30s, I think, and uh, it's been a while. But I was up there, and I had a 32-ounce framing hammer, <laughs> and it had a waffle head on it that when it struck the, the nail, it stuck. And I, was, I, I could sink a 20-penny nail, which is a big spike, in two or three blows, depending on how heavy the wood was that it was going into. I, I was a big guy. I, I went in my 30s. I could swing that thing. Well, I swung it one day. I was up here on this sign, way up in the air on, a, on I think it was I-5, uh, all these people driving by, and I missed the nail, and I took my thumb square on, the end of my thumb. I'm not going to go there as to what came out of my mouth. <laughs> and, and I stood up there. I was on a little two-by-eight stringer standing on the back, way up off the ground, and I had an absolute fit. It would have made a sailor's toenails curl. It was, it was bad. And, and I, I remember clear, I threw my hammer so hard to the ground uh, in this fit of just blind pain uh, that I, I punched a hole through a half-inch sheet of plywood. <laughs> and as I calmed down, I, the conviction that I experienced was significant because I wasn't accustomed to acting like that and speaking like that and all that. And, and I just remember standing up there, and I mean, there's thousands of people on this freeway. They probably watched the whole thing. It's like, what's that guy doing up there? But uh, just, just being, my heart just pierced. It's like, oh, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Oh, that, it just, it just, it just came out. No, I, it, that doesn't mean it's okay. A bad temper is never okay. Um, it's still missing the mark, but you've got to realize, I mean, using the archery term, you can miss the mark. You can still kill somebody, even if you don't intend to. So, it was something that I was convicted about. I got right with the Lord over and I moved on. But it, it just sort of reminds me of this thing that, of missing the mark, that it was a reaction. It was something that was there. My flesh, man, it kicked into gear. Psalm 119, what's the prescription for these things? What does God, God's word tell us about these things? In, in, in Psalm 119, I look, this is a prescription for sin. He says, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Steep yourself in the word of God and you will not be sinless in this life. I don't believe that the Bible bears that out. We're going to pack around this old nature till the day that we go to be with the Lord. However, you will sin less as you spend time with him, as you spend time in his word. James in chapter one, he says, and I prayed this for years. As a younger man, I just had a bad temper. And for years I prayed this. I'd say, Lord, help me to be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. And, and, it, and there, one day I read the next verse and it was like, it just, the lights came on. I never read the next verse. I was just praying James 1.19 and James 1.20 says, for the, the anger of a man doesn't even come close to the level of the righteousness of God. And I, I realized again, that that's, that's, I want to be walking rightly before you, Lord. The second thing about sin that we could look at is that it's due to indifference or neglect or recklessness. This is the word iniquity. The word literally means to be bent or to be twisted. This is the person that caves into temptation. This is, it's willful. You're not setting out to sin, but the temptation comes and you yield to it. 
it's always intentional. It's, it's something that we do. This is the kid, and it starts young. <laughs> we, you, I remember a, a pastor friend many years ago saying, do you think that we're not born with a fallen nature? Take a bottle away from a baby. <laughs> he said, it's a good thing they're not born big. <laughs> They'd probably clobber you. But the point is, is that this is the kid that is standing in the kitchen with his hands behind his back, and the cookie jar is open, <laughs> and, and you're saying, do you have a cookie? No. <laughs> do you, did you take? No. Um, in a more serious note, for Christians, this is the one who is struggling with hidden, perhaps even life-dominating sin. It happens. People fall into sin, and at times it creates a callus. Because sin, guys, sin, it, you know, when I was working with my hands, I had very heavy calluses on my hands. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I don't have any calluses at all. But I had these, and, and they, they built up to protect my hand. I, things wouldn't get through and affect me. And, and what happens with sin is it puts a callus over our hearts. And if we allow that to go on, that callus will get stronger, it will get thicker, and we will become more indifferent to the things of God, especially in the area of that sin as we go along. Very, very, very dangerous. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, we read, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God chastises, he chastens those whom he loves. That if we want to continue in sin, and, and all of us experience his chastising hand, if we, he says if you don't experience that, you may not belong to him. It's part and parcel with what our father does with us. We're talking about imitating him as children. And as his children, he will bring correction. There are times where we go to the woodshed with dad. And to bring and to entertain an area of sin in our lives is to invite correction and sometimes severe correction. I'm not proud of it. As a younger Christian, I was very glib about the things of God. I just really didn't care that much. I loved the Lord, but I played with it. And God chastised me, and he chastised me severely. I'll tell you, you don't want to toy with it. You take that thing and you toy with it. It wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't attractive. Sin is attractive. It looks good. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Moses chose rather than to be identified with the leadership in Egypt as, as the big guy, that he chose to be identified with the Hebrew slaves rather than to endure the passing pleasures of sin. It's pleasurable. It's attractive. If it wasn't It'd be no big deal. The third thing that I want to look at about sin is the person with whom it is completely willful. And there's no regard for God. Paul's going to be talking about that in the passage we're in this morning. Trespass or transgression, they're used interchangeably. And what this literally means is stepping over the line. All right? Uh, this is the person that takes God's commandments as perhaps useful suggestions that are optional. They're not. This is a person that doesn't care. This is a, this, it's one thing if 
you find out that you were wandering around. I've used this example before, but it's a good one. Let's say you're, you're out there wandering around and you realize you, you walk out of a field and you turn around and look, you see a sign that says, don't go in the field. You missed the mark. You were wandering in a place where you had no business being. And now you're not going to. This person, though, is the one that walks up, looks at the sign, reads it, says, stay out of the field, and says, I'm going in anyway. This is willful disobedience. Galatians 6.1, if a brother is caught in a trespass, willfully disobeying, you who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you be tempted and fall into the snare of the devil. What's that? You can actually sin going to, to restore an erring brother or sister. Uh, and if you find yourself in that place where you want to go, I, I cannot recommend enough, pray, 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 pray for that person. God may have given you insight into what that person's involved with or, or needs to repent of so that you can pray. You may not be the one that's called to, to talk with them. You may be. But again, I heartily recommend that that comes only after a long period of prayer. And, and, and you, you know the circumstances may determine what a long period is, but my point remains. This kind of sin is the kind of sin that David had with Bathsheba. He looked out, he saw the, the, the neighbor lady uh, getting ready to take a bath and decided that he was going to go for it. And then rather than repent when he had opportunity to, he made matters worse, brought her husband in from the battle lines. You know the story, most of you anyway, that brought him in, Ukiah, or Uriah, Ukiah, that's a city in California, Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> yeah, Ukiah the Hittite. Uh, anyway, Uriah the Hittite and, and brought him in and tried to get him to have relations with his wife and he wouldn't because he was a faithful warrior and he sent him back out on the front lines and had him killed. In Psalm 51, David wrote Psalm 51 after Nathan the prophet confronted him. Remember the story about the guy that had the little lamb and the wealthy guy and all, and you don't need to go through the story, but David was absolutely convicted to the core when Nathan confronted him. And he poured his heart out to God as a result of it. In Psalm 51.1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. As we get into today's text, I'm going to tag again verses 1 and 2 uh, briefly uh, because the context is everything. It, it, if you know me, it's all about the context. Uh, I teach in four different contexts. I teach in the cultural context, the historical context, the textual context, and the contextual context. And I want to go through verses one and two so that we get the flow of the contextual context. They're important. Actually, the last verse in chapter four comes into play here. As we do that, uh, verse 1 says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children or beloved children. We've looked at that, not going to belabor it again. But when we look at that, there was absolutely no way before the cross that man had the capacity to do that. You can't, it's the emperor's new clothes. There's no way that you being dead in your sins can fix yourself up. We know that. We looked at that in chapter 2. Going back to Genesis 1, God says, and I love that, the word Elohim, the, the 
singular but compound unity, that word for God, he says, let us create man in our image. Looking at the Trinity there back in the very beginning pages of the Bible. And he says that he did, he created man in his image. Now, not as we've talked about, we're talking about the attributes of God here, not the infinite attributes, not the incommunicable ones, but the moral attributes of God is how man was created. And we see though that through the fall, he, God had told them, he said, on that day, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That death is a result of the fall. When sin came into and polluted the human race, when man fell. However, the good news, Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, he says, for if by one man's offense, Adam, death reigned through the one, talking about death, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, that's through Adam's offense, re resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, that's Jesus' righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So now, on this side of the cross, with life, having been regenerated, having been given life by God himself, we have the ability to battle sin. He says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So we go from sinner to saint. Now we're being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the second Adam. By one man, everything went totally wrong. Through the second Adam, through Jesus, everything was put right. Being created in God's image is now something that, yes, it's a lifelong journey, but we're being conformed because we've been restored positionally to that image, and now practically he's working that image in us. What gets in the way of that? Sin. <laughs> so when we talk about imitating God, again, we're talking about godly character being built in us. Second Peter, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he says that we are partakers of the divine nature. Think about that. Let that sink in. That's powerful. We are partakers of the nature, the divine nature of God, that we have been restored and are being restored to being made in his image. We're being recreated in his image through the work of the cross. So the two main points that we're looking at as far as walking, we've looked at this word walking. It's through these, all of these passages here, chapters 4 through 6, we see it many times. That he says in chapter 4, verse 32, to walk in forgiveness. He says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says to imitate God as beloved children. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love and walk uh, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for, for us. Both of these statements, both in 4.32 and in 5.2, are amazing statements. Look at the tense in both of them. The way that the grammar is constructed. They are both past tense. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us, that I, I was in a place where I was helpless. I was in a place where I was just going along doing my sinful thing. And there was lots of it in my life before I came to Christ. What he's saying here is that the cross is the supreme act of love, the supreme act of forgiveness towards us. When we were utterly without hope, we were dead in our sins, we had done nothing, we could do nothing to gain God's favor. There was no way. We were trapped. And the grace of God came. It forgave us for our sins, past, present, and future. We see here in this that we can't do this in our own strength. That's just not possible. In Romans 7.18, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. We've talked about it before, folks. God is not into making me a better person. This is not a self-help program. He says there's got to be a death, and that's you. You need to die to the old nature, to die to self, that Christ would emerge. So we walk in love, we walk in forgiveness as the Spirit of God empowers us to do so. It's not something we produce in ourselves. Nothing good dwells in this flesh. He's not fixing me up. It's a new creation. Verse 3, he says, But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So moving from verses 1 and 2 into verses 3 and 4, we see a stark contrast here to God's love. He's been talking about God's love, and then all of a sudden he switches gears, and now what he's contrasting that with is the self-indulgent love of the world, which isn't really love at all. He contrasts imitating God with imitating the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You were called out of darkness and into light. What light? The light of God's truth, the light of God's kingdom. So let's look for a minute. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but let's look at these things that he's listed here. He talks about fornication, first of all. Your translation, I'm going out of the New King James, but yours might say sexual immorality, which is actually a better translation. The word there is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. And, and it, it means, it's, it has a lot broader meaning, meaning than fornication. Fornication being sexual relationship outside of marriage. Uh, but that's not where it stops. Porneia also encompasses, yeah, fornication, but adultery. Uh, homosexuality, prostitution, any sexual perversion that's outside of that which God has ordained, which is lifelong, monogamous, heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman, period. Uh, So when he talks about this, he's saying, look, the culture that you're in, pornea is popular. It's all over the place. And he's telling these Ephesians that are in this city where Sexual perversion was the rule of the day, really. I mean, the temple prostitutes were everywhere. They had their practices, their pagan practices were very sexual in nature, and they weren't godly in that sense at all, but they celebrated that whole pornea thing. He says, 
it's not supposed to be named among you. Uh, the second thing we look at here is uncleanness. That simply means impurity. What he's talking about is anything filthy, that, that which pollutes your life. He's talking about dirty moral behavior, covetousness. Simply translated, that's greed. It's a strong desire to acquire more and more. When I think about covetousness or greed, I think about somebody that's coveting money or possessions, and that's true. Those are primary forms of covetousness, but it's anything that you covet. That's why he links it with idolatry in verse 5. We'll get to that. But, but it's a strong desire to, to have more. It's a strong, it's, and it's based in desire. It's based in lust. That's why it's so dangerous. He says, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints or the holy ones. The moral appeal here is not, and I want to make this clear. You guys, I've talked about it before. We're not, don't look at these things as a checklist. Well, I'm doing this, this, and this. I'm doing good. If I'm not, if I'm not doing this, 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 it's not so good. No, it's not a checklist. It is important. It's critically important. But it's not avoid these things so that you can be a saint. That's not the point. The point is, since you're a saint, you are a saint, now live in a manner that's fitting for a saint. Walk the walk to which you've been called. It's, this isn't a recipe to get there. This is to people who are there. Remember, he's writing to a church. The consistent moral appeal of the New Testament is this. Be who you are in Jesus. And that's the point. So the question becomes, you know, here in our little church and, and you know, no, many of you, most of you, and, and it's, why are we even looking at these things, Pastor? I mean, you know, I, I'm here every Sunday and all that. Um, it's just kind of stuff that applies to other people and, <laughs> and all. No, it doesn't. We all have a fallen nature. We all have an old nature. We all have a lower nature that's still present. And it will be through the balance of this life. Is it, it is the lower nature now, now that I have been regenerated, now that I am a Christian, now that I have, I've been to the cross, I've been redeemed, my soul has been purchased, I've been declared righteous and holy, I've been declared sinless, but I still have this nature until the end of this life. It's powerful. It's appealing. As I mentioned, sin on the surface looks appealing. It always promises something that it can't deliver. How many people have sold their life for a moment of pleasure? Heartbreaking. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Peter knew. He understood the stakes are high. We've been called to lives that are set apart. Imitating the world will. I'm not talking about a maybe here. You might think you're strong. You can, you can have these worldly practices in your life. But imitating the world will break you down. It will grow that callous. 
It will cause the moorings to be loosened to where you now begin to drift from the cause of Christ in your life. In verse 4, he speaks initially, he speaks of filthiness, foolish, foolish talking, coarse jesting. Looking at those, filthiness. This is, this is somebody that has a foul mouth. It breaks my heart when I see Christians think that because they're under grace, they can have a foul mouth. And I see it. No, that's an area where that person needs to grow. It's an area that needs to be taken and set at the foot of the cross. Literally, this is degrading, demoralizing obscenities. It's not fitting. Foolish talking here is pointless, empty talk. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, <laughs> he says, talking like a moron. <laughs> I thought that was good. But this is the person who works innuendo into the conversation, this grown-up potty humor and, 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 and all that. It's, it, it, it's silliness, and it's worse than that. It's sin. The coarse jesting, it, it's where you twist words to give them a, a double entendre, a double meaning, a vulgar speech, turning something innocent into something suggestive or immoral. You want to get a dose of that, turn on and watch some stand-up comedian, and I don't care who, most of them are just garbage. And, and they appeal to the lower, the, the base nature of man to make things funny. And as a renewed man, it's not funny. I, and I'm not saying I don't like humor. I love stand-up comedy. I loved it before I became a Christian. It's just all of a sudden I couldn't watch it anymore. It was like, oh my gosh, that's just horrible. There are good Christian stand-up comics. And it, <laughs> if you want to see some, let me know. Uh, I love this guy like Michael J. comes to mind. He's just this very funny guy. But it's sanctified humor. And sanctified humor is a good thing. I use humor when I teach. I want to employ humor when I teach. It's a great teaching tool. People may not remember the point of your sermon, but they'll remember the thing that you said. But, and the, but they'll remember the, using humor to apply God's word very often. I, I, I love to use that. There's a warning in that, though. If you're the type of person that pokes fun at another's expense, stop it. Humor can be very destructive and usually you won't hear from that person. Usually they won't stand up to you and say, hey man, that really hurts. They'll just walk away hanging their head. And you've just, you just wiped somebody out for the sake of making a joke. Be very careful, folks, with, with your employment of humor. Let it be sanctified. And if you're going to laugh at somebody, you've got some great material right between your ears. I love to laugh at myself. If I do say something like with my wife, I'll ask her first, you know, hey, honey, can I share the... And sometimes it's no. <laughs> okay, I won't. But, you know, it's just really, really important that we understand how we're directing humor in our lives. We learn this coarse jesting. We learn this early. <laughs> I remember a time uh, my kids were three. My son was three. My daughter was five. I took him on a camp out. And I set up the tent and got them all set up in their bedrolls in the tent. And, and um, 
you know, I was sitting at the picnic table. It was dark, and they were in bed, but they weren't asleep. They were having fun. They were camping. And I could hear one of them talk. I couldn't hear what they were saying. And then the other one would go, and they'd start laughing. And then I'd hear the other one talk, and then they'd both start laughing. And I thought, what on earth is going on over there? And this is back, you know, 30-some years ago. And I had a little portable cassette player, tape recorder. So I punched record on this thing. And I walked over to the corner of the tent where their bedrolls were and very quietly set it on the ground and then crept back over and, you know, finished my evening. Well, I listened to it after they were asleep, and it was just potty humor. I mean, they were just cutting up, and they're, you know, speaking these... It wasn't like vulgar obscenities, but for them, at three and five years old, it was really edgy. (laughs) So the next morning at breakfast, I took this recorder. They're sitting on both sides of the table eating their bowl of cereal out of their paper bowl, and I set this recorder right between the two of them, and I pressed play. (laughs) I should have seen the look on their face. My point in that is we express our fallen nature pretty early in life. Uh, My friend would say, you think that we don't try to take a bottle away from a baby. (laughs) You'll find out that, yeah, we're born with a fallen nature. It's a good thing we're small. The point in that, again, is that you you can watch television for 10 minutes, put on a movie, and oh my goodness, it's like offensive. And if that's not offensive to you, you really need to check your barometer because God here calls it sin. And sin is sin. I have found that the the list of things that I take on on television and movies has grown really small. There are times where I will search for a movie for 20 minutes and finally give up and say, come on, honey, let's go whatever. (laughs) Take a walk. I'm not trying to put down a law. I'm just saying that we become inoculated by our culture and things that are not okay all of a sudden become okay. And, and that's where we need to discern. What's God's will in this? What is his heart for me in this? I'm not being legalistic. These are things that, by which we honor God. Verse 4 again, he says, they're not fitting. But, but he says, rather, give thanks. The point in this, again, the first century culture in Paul's day, the city of Ephesus specifically, it was given over to sexual immorality. Behavior that Paul says is not fitting for saints. Not even talking about it, he says. Not even making jokes about it. He says, no, just leave it alone. Get it out of, put some distance down. It was completely approved in his culture in that day. That's why he's writing this. Guess what? Some things don't change. The actors, the players have changed, but the world is still the world. And the corruption that's in the world through lust is very real and very much alive and very much approved out there today. He's saying you don't have to be like that, be set apart. It's not fitting. It doesn't fit. He's talking about put off the old man, put on the new man. I mean, we talked about those are clothes changing terms. He's saying, don't put on something that doesn't fit. And this is not fitting. It does not fit you as a Christian, as a believer. Leave it alone. Let it go. Let it not be part of your life. He says, rather give thanks. 
The sexual union between a husband and a wife is sanctified. It's clean. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the marriage bed is undefiled. It's not dirty. It's a beautiful thing when it's practiced as God has ordained it. If you think about back in the garden when man fell, that that image was tarnished. How, and being created in God's image, how is that, communi- that image communicated from generation to generation? Through the sexual relationships that we have, the sanctified ones. Anything else is a perversion. It, 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 it perverts the image in which we were created. It's either eros, which is the good, it's physical love, the one that's ordained by God, or it's porneia, the one that's a perversion. Imitate God or imitate the world. You choose. I choose. So think, Paul knows that these things are powerful. He knows that these things can captivate us. He knows that these things can overtake people and numb them to the things of God. You, that's that callous. That's what I'm talking about. It gets easier. You talk to anybody who has been caught up in in sin, they'll say, you know, I was convicted to begin with, but it just got easier as I went. That's our power to rationalize. That's our power to just say, you know what? I, it, it's okay for me. It's not okay. And if that numbness takes hold, it's a very dangerous thing. We're talking about the holiness of God. We're talking about the character of God being put on in us. I I think about Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 19. God says, you know, every time that Israel was out of line, I acted for the sake of my name that it would not be profaned among the nations. This isn't in my notes. This is free. Um, And and what he was saying is because of who I am, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, extending grace to generations, because of who he is, he doesn't want to see this showing up in our lives because it completely misrepresents who he is. He will act for the sake of his name, that it won't be profane. That's why, in verse 5, he throws out a huge, strong, important warning. He says, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He is speaking about those people who are purposely, willfully, persistently employing and engaging in this kind of lifestyle. These are lifestyle choices he's talking about. He's not talking about somebody that blew it, repented. He's not talking about somebody that hit their thumb with a hammer on top of a sign. He's talking about people who say, you know what? I don't care. He's saying, don't act like them. He's essentially saying, imitating the world testifies to an unredeemed sinful nature person may be even be a church goer. 
Interesting, in, in verse 5, the, uh, I'm going to read the New Living Translation. I, I like the way this is rendered. He says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. <clears throat> For a greedy person is an idolater, worship, worshiping the things of this world. Not just greedy for money. When I think about uh, somebody that's greedy, I think about they want money, they want material things. No, idolatry is anything that one sets up in the place of God in their life. Are there idols in your life? They need to be torn down. We'll get to that in a minute. An idolater is someone who's made the things spoken of here their idol. That's what the, it's, it's, they've put it above their affections for Christ. There are so many things out there, folks, that compete for our affections. Even good things. That when that becomes more important to me than my relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm an idolater. And I need to repent of that. I want to note something here, though, that understand, Christians, we're, we are not perfect. This is talking about the general direction of someone's life in either imitating God or imitating the world. It's about loving God or loving the world. First John chapter 2, John says, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Verse 6. Two services, my my voice starts getting a little strange. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, when he says empty words here, the word there for empty, it literally means hollow. You know, hollow. Yeah. That, it, what it means is it's devoid of truth. There's nothing there. That they talk big, they have good talk. They've got this big thing that they're putting forth. Oh, yeah, you can do it. You can live like the world. Oh, yeah, hey, you know, God's a good God. He loves you. No, no, no. it's hollow. They're devoid of truth. That's his point. This is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about us. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, hollow. And your faith is also empty. Same word here that, that when he's talking about He says, don't be deceived with empty words. There's nothing there. There's nothing of substance that will benefit you. Evidently, the false teachers had been telling the Ephesians, hey, it's okay, you can live like this. Yeah, I was taking a drive with Andrew the other day. We're talking about Gnosticism, which was a big deal in the first century. And there there are tenets of Gnosticism that are alive and well today here in our culture, in some of the false religions that are out there. And what it says, it teaches that, that, that spirit and body are separate. And, and it's, what they would teach is whatever you do with your body is okay. It doesn't count. It's just kind of neutral. And then there's your spiritual life over here. Those were empty words. That was the kind of thing that he's addressing here. It's not okay. <laughs> it's sin. 
And he talks about the sons of disobedience here. He's talking about those who had never truly converted. Their outcome. Should they not repent, they will experience the wrath of God. Period. He's serious about sin. Verse 7, he says, Therefore do not be partakers with them. With who? The sons of disobedience. Don't, don't take part in that. They're not headed to the same destination as you. He says, don't take part of these things that are sin. They promise, again, they promise what they can't deliver. They're very, very dangerous for you, Christian. Discern those things in your own heart about your own life. Yeah, it's all right if you're discerning something about another, but ask God to show you in your own life, in your own heart, the things that you need to tend to in your garden. And if there are things growing in your garden that need to get weeded out, you better pull them. That's what repentance is. In Ephesians 3, 6, Paul tells us that we're partakers of God's promises in Christ through the gospel. He says, don't be partakers with them. Be partakers of Christ. This is a thread. I want you to know that this is not something that's just found here in Ephesians chapter 5. This, this whole thread, it's a thread that goes through the word of God. I want to look at, a, as we wrap up this morning, I want to look at a powerful type from the Old Testament that brings these things home. That, that My prayer is that we can relate to this, we can connect with it. If you're having trouble connecting with it, I'm going to give you the type, so <laughs> don't worry about it. But, but that we can understand this has been part of God's design all along. And it's in the book of Numbers chapter 33. We're going to start there. We're going to go into the book of Judges as well. In Numbers 33, uh, in verse 51 through 53, we read this. He says, speak. This is God speaking through Moses, all right, to the children of Israel. He says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you've crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved engraved stones, destroy their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Here's the type. Canaan represented God's promises. The promised land, that's what it's called, uh, to God's people. The people had come out of Egypt. Egypt was a type, it represents the world. They had come out of Egypt, but they had not come into the inheritance that they had been given, which was the promises of God. Because of unbelief, the sin of unbelief, Hebrews tells us it was the sin of unbelief that kept them out. When they got to Kadesh Barnea and they went through the whole thing with the spies and all that, and God said, fine, you don't want to go in, you're not going in. Only your kids will go in later, 40 years from now. They wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. But when their children did go in, they were told to subdue the land, which they did not. We saw there that God said, look, I want you to go in. I want you to tear down all their high places. I want you to get rid of the idols. The idolatry was rampant. The Canaanite religions were horrid. And God's judgment on them was coming about. He was going to use Israel to do it. And as a result, Israel would be blessed by dwelling in a land that was free from all of that. Just like us. 
He's taken us out of Egypt. He's pulled us out of the world and brought us into the kingdom of light. And he said, look, I want you to subdue those things, those things in the land that will be a snare for you. In Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read, then the angel of the Lord, and I believe it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. This is here, having crossed into the land, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And then they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. We have a free will. Egypt, a type for the world, it's out there. And I'm not going to mislead you. Sometimes Egypt calls your name, doesn't it? It calls mine. The lust of the flesh, the lust uh, of the eyes and the pride of life. All sin is rooted in that. We can come out and fail to go in. We can fail to subdue the land. Canaan was a type for the promises of God. We can go into the land, yet live a life of compromise and not allow God to deal with our old, lower, sinful nature. And it will be a thorn and a snare to us. This is a beautiful picture. I love that God paints with a big brush in the Old Testament and he uses this detailed brush. I'm a painter, I'm an artist, but I tell you, it's a great metaphor for me. But he uses a detail brush and he gets in and he starts filling in the details in our lives. So we can do that or we can discern the signs of the times. We can welcome his sanctifying hand in conforming us to the image of his son. That's our free will. Choose wisely. Last week, we talked about cultivating a lifelong mindset of repentance, that that's how our lives are transformed. God puts his finger on something, maybe something that is, he's blown the dust off this morning. Maybe something you've been comfortable with for a long time. Maybe something you've allowed a long time ago and you've just been going along, figure it's not a big deal. It is a big deal to him. Repent. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to empower you. Imitate God. Don't imitate the world. Allow him to have that transforming work, his transforming hand to come to bear in your life. In doing so, our lives take on increasing depth, meaning, and maturity. We grow in Christ. It's important to remember, and I want to make sure that that I end this message on this, that grace is always, always, always available. He is a loving and merciful and gracious God. While we were yet sinners, while we were stuck in that hole, 
Christ died for us. He shed his blood for us. If you don't know uh, Christ this morning, if you're watching online or here, you can know the God that we're talking about here, the loving God that we're talking about here, the God of the Bible. There is a transaction. He says that you have to come to him by faith. You have to believe that he is, the Bible says, to believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if that's you, if you're tired of the old life, if you're tired of being in the world, maybe you're part of that whole crowd that I'm talking about and your life's not working, you're jammed up, you're stressed out, you have no answers. Give your life to Jesus this morning, now. Don't wait. Turn from the old life. That's what repent means. It means change your mind. I've been going long, it's not working. I, I, I'm tired of it. I'm done. Give your life to Jesus. Ask him to come in to set up in your life, in your heart, and he will. He'll give you a new life. He'll give you new meaning. He'll give you a new direction. He will change you from the inside out. You don't have to struggle to try to change. If you're one of those people who says, well, when I get my life together for God, then I'll come. You'll never get to that point. None of us are. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But his gift is eternal life. Yes, a more abundant life now, but to be able to live forever in his presence. Pray a simple prayer, something like this. God, I've been walking away from you all my life. I've been in rebellion towards you, or maybe I'm coming back because as a child, uh, perhaps, you made a profession of faith. And and God, I'm turning from that. I, I, I don't want that. It's yielded thistles and thorns. It's just not benefited me at all. And I give my life to you. I let the weight of my life down on Jesus. That's what responding to the gospel is about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that if you're weary and you're laden and you're, you're, you're just heavy, he says, come to me. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you meaning. I will grow you into the person that I've designed you to be. That's God's will for us. As Christians, we beat a hasty trail around sin. We, we push it away, big or small. And, and, and I mean it when I say, you know, the, the little things are important to God. Allow him to take the callus off your heart. Live a life that's free. You may not have as much to watch, but you might find some really good things to do in the meantime. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your divinely inspired word and for your word to us this morning, Lord, as we're looking at sin and, and that none of us is above the ability to fall into sin. And just thinking of how many lives have been train wrecked because of it, because of the allure. We pray, Father, for those that might be caught up that you would grant them a spirit of repentance. We pray for, I pray for each of us, Lord, that as we look at these things, that we would just have hearts that are grateful that you've taken us out of Egypt and you've put us in the land of promise and that by your strength, we're subduing these enemies that would be a snare to us. 
We love you this morning. We thank you for this. We thank you for who you are in our lives, that you're personal. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord, as we worship you now. In Jesus' name.